Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And we are here today with Michelle Krasovitsky. Thanks for being here, Michelle. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So, Michelle, I'm going to get us started with a bit of history, okay? I would like to know, and I'm sure our viewers will too, what brought you to doing your master's in education in the field of applied linguistics? Yeah, so a year ago, if you were to ask me where I was thinking I was going to do my master's, this university and this uh, department would not be it. I started my undergrad at the University of Toronto at the Scarborough campus uh, in 2016, and I did a specialization in psycholinguistics, uh, which essentially led me in the path towards becoming a speech pathologist. Uh, but around halfway or in the later part of my undergrad, I realized that I didn't really connect with the kind of neuroscience and psychology that the field demanded. And I was much more interested in sociolinguistics, which uh, looked more at the way that language is used in social settings, which made me more interested in applied linguistics. Uh, and so in my final kind of application sprint, I decided to apply to this applied linguistics program at Western. And when I got in, it was a no break very interesting <laughs> and so then I want to kind of build off of that and ask when I say um and uh is that something that is social linguistics it definitely is. So that's more of a of a behavior that uh, a behavioral, uh, I guess, component to language than it is a linguistic. Which um, essentially, you know, I took this fascinating course called language and gender, but it really illuminated the way that men and women and just people in general are socialized differently depending on which country or culture they belong to uh, to speak differently. So one of the things that I personally, as kind of like I guess a side fun fact that I always notice is something called responsiveness. So women typically, when another person is talking, uh, they tend to be a lot more responsive by saying things like mm-hmm and nodding their heads and asking questions while the other person is speaking, whereas men tend to be silent and only respond at the end. Uh, and I, that's something I always, as someone who has a lot of guy friends, I always found myself frustrated with the fact that I thought I was being ignored. Uh, but then in courses, I found out that that was just an aspect uh, of the way that we all speak differently if when, that answers <laughs> when you put it like that it sounds uh, very intriguing and very like uh, uh relevant to your day-to-day -day life this uh linguistics field um uh, maybe can you give us uh kind of a, a broad understanding what what exactly is linguistics and and the, the subtypes yeah so linguistics i think when people hear it they understand it to be the study of language, which for all intents and purposes, it is. One of the questions I get asked is, well, how many languages do you speak? Which isn't very much what linguistics is about. So it does get a little misinterpreted as the literal study of languages. Um, what linguistics is, is the idea of breaking down language as an idea um, and interpreting it in different ways. So as I mentioned, I was initially in psycholinguistics. This had a very heavy emphasis on neuroscience and psychology. So I was studying things like language disorders, 
um, the way that toddlers learn languages, the way that second languages, or rather I should say the way that babies acquire language versus the way that older people learn languages. Um, we were looking at what happens to the brain um, when languages or words enter the system. Uh, and then there's this other field, which is sociolinguistics. Sociolinguistics, like I said, is much more interested in sociology as a discipline. So the way that language is used in politics, in culture, in education, things like bilingualism um, in the public school system, language policy, education policy. So this is all sociolinguistics. And then applied linguistics doesn't really have a definition the idea of applied linguistics is taking those disciplines that make up linguistics, things like syntax, which is how words um, derive meaning by their organization in a sentence, morphology, which is how parts are added onto a word to derive meaning, um, and so and applying them to a different discipline. So in Western, uh, much to my delight, applied linguistics was within the realm of education, but I know a lot of other applied linguistics programs are more concerned with things like computer science and AI. So um, the field of applied linguistics doesn't have a specific definition, but if you are an undergrad, largely it's separated between psycholinguistics and sociolinguistics. Well, that's a, a very concise and very accurate uh, summary of linguistics. Uh, thanks for enlightening us uh, with that description. <laughs> um, so now we have this kind of idea about what linguistics is and what's the difference between psycholingu psycholinguistics, sociolinguistics, and now applied linguistics, which seems to not exactly have a, a specific home, but in your case is home is, uh, is education. Um, in your case, uh, how does your interest in applied linguistics fit with education? Mm -hmm. It's something I've always kind of had at the forefront of my mind. And I think that's the cool thing about um, undergraduate, graduate schooling is that you get to connect your interests with um, more academia and scholarship. Um, I went through uh, French learning, but specifically I didn't go through French immersion. So I did minor in French in university and I am fairly proficient in French, but I went to a core French program at a French immersion high school. And I saw how, despite the fact that I also had a lot of courses, my French was a lot worse than that of my friends who were in French immersion. Um, and so I was always interested at the way that languages are taught in schools. Uh, that was further complicated when I was in university. And in my French courses, we would have people come in from OISE, which is the um, UFT's uh, teacher's school, um, and essentially, uh, very emphatically ask us to consider becoming French teachers because Ontario uh, public schools were experiencing a really big, um, I guess, deficit of qualified French teachers to the fact that they were considering um, asking people from France to come over to teach for a bit. And so I realized that um, living in a bilingual country, you get this privilege of having access to French. If you look at I guess at Ontario's Education Act, everybody has a right to uh, French language learning in, pub in the public school system, uh, but that just, I guess, culturally, our approach to French, our approach to bilingualism in Anglophone Canada um, may 
not kind of spur on that interest to actually put children to actually take on French on her own. Um, and so down the line, that kind of bilingualism may be on the decline. And so I was always interested in, well, how do we improve uh, the school system, but also public's engagement and interest uh, in learning a language that isn't French, or sorry, apologies, that isn't English, um, learning French. Um, and so I always was thinking of language within this context of education. Um, and so that kind of led me here to, to find out how you can promote both through policy and through pedagogy, which is the idea of, of teaching. Um, that's the field of, of studying teaching, um, how you can learn through both of those fields, how to, um, I guess, sustain our bilingualism. That is very interesting, Michelle. And I'm kind of curious, so where you're at right now in your master's, is this a lot of like course term papers that you're writing on different topics or are you finding yourself really drawn to topics of sustaining bilingualism? You know, I thought entering, I thought I had such a clear idea of what I would be studying, which is this idea of bilingualism. Uh, when I applied to Western, my supervisor, Dr. Julie Bird Clark, uh, she took me on when I proposed that I would be studying Toronto's uh, Hebrew uh, language day schools because I grew up in Winnipeg uh, and I went to a, a private school where we learned Hebrew for half of the day. Um, and I know personally that it did not really help my Hebrew. Um, and in Toronto, in Winnipeg, it was just the one school, but in Toronto, there are about 13 of these kinds of schools. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of take a look at their curricula, uh, to take a look at the different pedagogical strategies that teachers use to compare and contrast that. But as I've been kind of formally introduced to the field of education and learning more about things like policy um, and culture, I found that my interest has been drawn in different directions. Currently, I'm very interested in uh, policy and curriculum that teaches media literacy. I think right now in a, in a time where we're all so online and we're bombarded with these one sentence headlines of news. It's so important to get um, students to understand how they can think critically and assess the things that they see and, and be questioning and, and kind of smart about the kind of content they consume. Um, and just I did um, a curriculum assessment for one of my previous courses, and I found that there was a, a a distinct lack of uh, focus on media literacy in even the updated curriculums. And so now I'm kind of drawn in these two different directions of do I go with what I intended to study or do I adjust and, and kind of look at this new interest. I do think that is a common a common feeling in early grad programs. <laughs> Ariel, can you attest to that as well? Um, I think it's I think it's quite a lot different uh, depending on the, the program you're in, you know, like uh, uh, I guess I did. I did kind of juggle different project, a couple project ideas when I when I came to to Western. Um, but like I, I'm from Vancouver. Interestingly enough, I also went to a Jewish uh, elementary oh. school and 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 learned learned Hebrew until I was you know 12. And now I don't really speak any. <laughs> and if I do speak any, it's only because I like go to Israel every once in a while to see my cousins. So that's the only time I ever use it. Uh, but uh, when I can, when you enter a program in science, typically for most science programs, um, you you start with a supervisor and you just immediately jump into research. Specifically, it's like very very research spoke focus. So you kind of have to know your project the second you hit the ground because uh, otherwise you're not. What else are you going to do? You do nothing then. <laughs> um, the courses are like a, an adjunct and they don't really have any relevance 
um, specifically to your research. They're just kind of broadening your understanding of the field. So for me, it's like they want to make sure that people who come out of this program know neuroscience generally. So I took a general neuroscience course and that was it. And there was one other course that for me was aging and that was it. Um, but, uh, I did, I did end up taking on a project that I hadn't intended. I was going to work with mice and ended up going, okay, the mice is going to take a long time. And I started doing a fruit fly work, um, uh, as well, but Michelle, so you mentioned that you, uh, were, you're debating between, you know, uh, bilingualism, maybe how do you Hebrew specifically, maybe something like that and media literacy as like, there's a a major lack in in current relevance. Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe speak more on the connection between uh, linguistics and media literacy. Yeah. So the connection between media literacy and linguistics, um, it's very complicated because when we're talking about becoming critical thinkers, it's not always about language. It's sometimes or largely it's about understanding how to question um, the things that we see, how to research how to interpret. And so that doesn't always come from language because the other kind of side of it is that headlines are purposefully used to grab our attentions. So the language and headlines is meticulously picked to trend, to go viral. Sometimes it's inflammatory on purpose. A very kind of uh, innocent topic is phrased in a way that it gets shared over and over without anybody actually clicking on it and, and seeing that it's not as big of a deal as it is made out to be. Um, and so there certainly is this parsing of language that is necessary. Um, in reading something and understanding the motivation behind it, but also its impact on our maybe emotions and and on our first senses. But it's also largely having that ability to think and to criticize and to analyze. Um, You know, my generation, uh, very late or very early Gen Zs, uh, we largely get our news according to Pew Research and and a lot of different studies from social media. So you're scrolling through um, TikTok or not TikTok, Twitter. TikTok isn't really used as a news source as yet, but you're scrolling through t- Twitter and, and you see things that are trending, things that um, things people you follow and the things that they retweet. But the problem there is you're kind of forming your own microcosm because you get to curate your dashboard. Um, and so sometimes if you look at more traditional media outlets like the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, uh, the way that their journalism is is um, shown is different from the way that your social medias are shown. And so there's that kind of disconnect. And I think that we're kind of moving away from the ability to be able to um, consume traditional media. So media that isn't written out in TikToks or in in short video, uh, short videos, short tweets. And we see that in the fact that subscribership is going down for almost every single media outlet. Um, And so because of that, we have to pivot and understand that this new generation is largely getting their news and their information from 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 Twitter. I don't know if if this reached your side of Twitter, but recently the news that Succession star um, Jeremy Strong would be playing the live version of Stuart Little went viral uh, and it was actually passed along as fact. And so there's this kind of, um, and it started off as a joke to the fact that the original creator was kind of like, I can't believe people actually rolled with this as if this is real. Uh, But there seems to be this um, 
kind of I don't want to I don't want to generalize, but some kind of inability to be critical and to question the things that we interpret. Um, and that's largely what schools are for, right? When I took English classes, I was taught literary theory, I was taught psychoanalytic lenses, Marxist lenses, um, feminist lenses through which to interpret literature. I was given those tools to be able to read a book and be able to find the motifs and the themes and the symbols. Um, and so there's no reason that that kind of skill set shouldn't be taught in schools, but school policy and curricula is largely responsive and late. And so just to get that ball rolling is a big ordeal on its own. But in that way, uh, media literacy is both connected and isn't connected in linguistics. Uh, on, on a virality level, it is, because that's what goes viral, but the ability to interpret and parse is, is beyond that. So Michelle, when we're talking about media literacy and when we're talking specifically about that in connection to applied linguistics, when we bring in your research focus, we'd be thinking both at the curricular level, what we could input into classrooms, but also potentially what we could do at policy level. Is there a side to that that you're more interested or is it kind of a both things you have to do both at once? I think it would be, um... Uh, yeah, I think it would be something that would be tackled together, uh, just because the scope of the project it would, would be, you know, it's a one year research project. Uh, yeah, project. So it would have the space to both have this curricular analysis that would then lead way to policy recommendation. I think that's that's how that would be structured. Yeah. Do you have to do any teaching yourself then in this program? You don't. So I have never. I work as a tutor outside of uh, outside of schooling, uh, but I didn't have to be certified to enter school. Uh, that being said, I'd I'd say eighty percent of my peers are teachers who go back to get their masters. So you don't have to. Um, but it, it it seems that most of the student body has taught. So you said that in addition to your work, right, you're, I'm assuming in cl uh, classes right now, and then you're tutoring, are there any other things that you like to do outside of school to keep you, I, I'm, I'm assuming you have very limited spare time, but what do you do in that limited spare time? Actually, quite the opposite. I find that masters, because they're so, uh, there's less courses than an undergrad, um, and the fact that I moved to London and I'm closer uh, to campus than when I was going to UFT, where I lived in Vaughan and had to commute to Scarborough. For anybody in Toronto, they'll know that's a very, very long commute. So, quite the kind of quite the opposite you, you'd expect. Um, but yeah, in my free time, I actually work as a freelance journalist. Um, I'm mainly a culture journalist. So one of my passions and, and uh, is film and, and television. Um, and so I, I review movies, I um, write cultural analysis, but I also do a great deal of writing on education. So I've covered openings of different kinds of uh, language schools. I recently wrote about Wordle and which I guess more is in, in the language uh, sphere. So uh, in my free time, I, I do like to write. You know what, can we can we just take a, a one second detour and tell me what Wordle is? I've heard of it, but like, I don't know if I get it. <laughs> What's the deal? Sure. Michelle, give us your take. It, I love it. I got everybody in on it, like all of my parents, my friends, we make competitions out of it. It's essentially once a day, um, you have to guess the, the 
five letter word of the day, you have six chances. Um, each guess tells you whether the letter is not in the word, if it's in the word, but in the wrong place, and if it's in the word and in the right place. And so knowing those clues, you go forward and attempt to guess um, the word. I'm currently nursing a 44 day streak. I haven't lost yet. Um, and so I, I definitely, am approaching it from from a place of of interest and enjoyment i'm sure that as soon as i get it wrong i am going to ditch it immediately but it's a fun little game it was recently bought out by the new york times so um they said that initially they're going to keep it free so who knows how long we're going to have before it's behind a paywall so kind of i'm in the mentality of enjoying it while it lasts but it's very fun do you uh so you're freelance writing i mean mm -hmm. do you write for yourself do you get paid to do that writing or have like a patreon or do you write for a company or how, how does it work as a freelance yeah so freelance so i actually considered going doing my master's in journalism i in undergrad i was a staff writer at the university of toronto's the varsity i wrote for sports i'm a big baseball fan so i covered the blue jays for three years uh, but i also covered toronto international film F uh, festival for three years for uh, the arts um, section and so i actually considered going doing my master's in journalism because it's something i really enjoy uh, but largely the field of journalism right now because of the fact that there's so little readers or a declining readership uh, for these newspapers, um, kind of staff positions are on the decline. And instead, what publications do is they hire freelancers for one-off articles. And so I don't write for a blog. I don't write on Patreon. I pitch to editors. And if they accept, I write an article, they publish it, and I get paid. So I've gotten published by Teen Vogue, The Verge, um, ID, which is a Vice publication. I cover Sundance Film, Film Festival for the past two years for Bitch Media, which is a feminist publication. Um, I've been published in Haaretz, which is a Israeli newspaper. It republished some of my articles that I've done for um, the forward and JTA. Um, and so I, I've kind of in my two years, I've, I feel like I've built up a, a nice little roster of articles, but um, it's freeing because I don't have assignments. So I can essentially write what I want. But on the other hand, uh, there isn't that kind of traditional stability that comes from a staff position. Michelle, from the point of view as a grad student that's doing this freelance work on the side, do you have any sort of advice that you would give to someone that's considering the same as a grad student, kind of taking on this freelance journalism? Yeah, absolutely. My first thing is you have to, it has to be, you have to find enjoyment and fulfillment from it uh, because the whole process, you know, if you're specifically looking to go into freelancing, um, the it's it's hard to get the ball rolling you have to get editors contact information but also you're essentially writing up pitches that may not land anywhere uh that you may not even get responses to i'd say that including rejections and acceptances i only get responses to 40 percent of my emails so you have to understand that you're going in it for um you know it's it's a very thankless job but on the other hand I get paid to write about movies and I have more incentive to watch movies and to watch TV shows. And so I find it's so, um, I find so much enjoyment from it. Um, and also I just really enjoy writing. So it feels like it's a, it's, it's a mesh of all of the thing of all of the hobbies that I enjoy. Um, I also have, I have two minors. I have a minor in French and I have a minor in film and literature. So I feel that I also get to, um, 
kind of bring into play the things more of the theoretical and academic things I I um I learned in undergrad. Um, bear with me here. Maybe we mm-hmm. maybe I can ask you a, a little sort of meta question. Um, you know, uh, talking about media, uh, there is another type of media that exists called podcasting, which we happen mm-hmm. to be familiar with here on this podcast that we're speaking on. Um, and I'm wondering how you, from a well, like a linguistics lens and from a freelance journalist lens, what you think of uh, podcasting as a form of media that you can digest any, anything about the news or about, I don't know, as, a, as another avenue? I really like that question. Uh, the, I, I, I think I've indirectly been thinking about it a little bit because one of the, I guess, niches I write in or I cover as well is true crime. So I kind of look at trends in the way in true crime media. So Netflix docuseries. Um, and one of my favorite articles I've written is about, it's called, it was for ID. Um, it was about the true crime makeup community on YouTube. And I got to interview two psychologists just about why are we drawn to watching, you know, people put on their makeup and talk about these grisly murders. Uh, But the reason I bring that up is because, at least in my personal opinion, as someone who consumes a lot of true crime content, uh, the best forum for that are podcasts. Uh, CBC has some of, I think, the best journalism and investigations. Um, Hunting Warhead is just a shocking, shocking podcast that that really kind of stuck with me. Um, And I highly recommend, although the content is very, very sensitive. But In saying that, it's because podcasts have this room for interviews that maybe written journalism doesn't in the sense that you certainly have space to quote people, but because things are so online and because even if it's in print, you're working with constraints, um, the kinds of testimonies that episodic, um, you know, podcasts have the room to do aren't don't don't have space um, in traditional kind of written journalism. And so for that, at least for me, I, I get all of my true crime content from podcasts for that reason. But I guess it just depends on on your interests and on the on what engages you. So like I said, I, you know, we're kind of getting away from being able to read everything. So the fact that there's this auditory equivalent could be a good way of diversifying the way that people get their information. Um, I listen to the front burner, I listen to Canada land. So there certainly are, um, there are, yeah, uh, great podcasts on, I, I'm, I'm a Spotify, I'm loyal to Spotify, uh, where you can get both news and topics of interest. But again, it, it depends on, on what you enjoy and what you like. If you like more kind of 10 minute quick assessments, you know, there's a lot of YouTube videos that if we're using true crime as an example, lots of YouTubers that cover true crimes in 30 minutes and, and you're good, pop up a couple of pictures to give you a sense and, and you move on. Um, if you want more of those deep dives, investigations, analysis of how societal structures uh, failed the victims, that's where you, that's at least where I go to podcasts and to a couple of documentaries, although that's, that's a different topic uh, entirely on the visual front. I'm really glad that we've really gone into the media conversation. It's where my interest is too. Um, Michelle, that's where we converge. And my, I have one final question for you before we get into the wrap up, which is basically, what's your pick of the season for the Sundance Festival? What should we be watching? What did you report on that you think we all need to see? 
So for the second year in a row, my favorite is one that kind of slipped under under the radar. I'm very into horror. That's largely what I report on. Yeah. So um, my pick from this past year, Sundance, again, is one that kind of went under the radars. It, it didn't win any awards, but it's this Danish movie called Speak No Evil. If anyone's familiar with the uh, kind of the films of Michael Haneke. This is very much in line with that. It's this kind of very slow, very tense horror where it's just it, the, the suspense really builds on and it has one of the best climaxes, I'd say, of the past couple of years. Uh, for anybody into indie rock, my second favorite was this documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom. Um, it's about the indie scene from the early 2000s in New York City. I'm a huge The Strokes fan, uh, but they also cover LCD sound system, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really cool to see that kind of footage. Um, and I also like this horror movie called Watcher about, it, was, it starred Micah Monroe, who's kind of a, a horror darling right now. So, so that's exciting. Um, as she goes to Romania with her husband, uh, she doesn't speak the language. So actually it's, it's a linguistic movie. Uh, she doesn't speak the language and it, it chan charts her um, frustration as she thinks she's being stalked, but nobody believes her and she can't properly communicate with police or with neighbors to um, kind of, uh, to it's communicate her distress. Um, and so those would be my three speak no evil, meet me in the bathroom and watcher. Those have okay, my recommendation. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly going to be looking into those. But speaking of communication, we are almost out of time. And so on behalf of Gradcast, we are absolutely so thankful that we were able to have you today on the show. And I want to say that if anybody had the urge to reach out to you or follow up or check into your freelance journalism, is there a website or email or social media that you'd like to plug here that we can so that we can get in touch with you? Yes. So if anybody would like to read my writing or just get in touch, I have a website that has all of my articles. It's myname.com, michellekrasovitsky.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I uh, frequently tweet out my articles and just kind of um, also about the reporting process. And it's at Shell Crass, C-H-E-L-L-E-K-R-A-S. All right. Well, this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Brittany Mountain, and my co-host was Ariel Frame. We've been speaking with Michelle Krasovitsky, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to get involved in the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.